Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self mastery. Our guest today hails from Newark, New Jersey. He is one of the best to ever pick up a saber sword. He's the first black man to win an Olympic medal in fencing. He's a six time Olympian, a two time Pan American gold medalist, and a 13 time U.S. fencing champion. He's the president of the Peter Westbrook Foundation, which aims to help inner city youth master themselves through the sport of fencing. The foundation has had a great deal of success over the years, producing many Olympians and earning medals for the United States. The foundation brings in guest speakers that the students identify with, and they focus on academic excellence by providing students with tutors to help improve not only their physical capabilities, but their mental as well. Let's welcome today, Mr. Peter Westbrook to the program. Mr. G, it's a pleasure to be here, to hear, and to feel the spirit of all your people, my people, your people, black, brown. I see you got white people, some Asian people. I love me some people. So it's welcome to be. I'm so welcome and honored to be on your show. Mr. G, how, how many times Olympian did you say I was? Uh, six times. Did I make a mistake? No, no, that's, no, that's right. That's right. That's right. I'm just saying sometimes when I think of six times, you know, Olympics are every four years. Yes, 24 it's, it's, years. Know, 24 years in that environment. You know what? You want to hear something funny, Mr. G? Some people tell me, well, Peter, six-time Olympian, that's 24 years in that arena. That's unbelievable. That's phenomenal. That's true. But on the other side of the coin, me mm-hmm. fight my demons all the time. Took me 24 years to get rid of them. So even though <laughs> they wind up being magnificent in regards to the press and actuality inside, it took me 24 years to fight them demons back. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Great points, great point. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's I don't even know. I know I don't know if you would know, but I don't even know if there are a lot of Olympians that have made six appearances uh, on an Olympic many, team, man. Maybe not too many at all. Maybe maybe I don't maybe three. I don't know. Yeah, we might have to search the record books for that <laughs> one. <laughs> that's an incredible feat, man. Um Man, and we were just talking earlier, too, about just your fountain of youth, man, just to be able to sustain yourself for so long, man. And we'll get into that, man. But that definitely, I know that comes with a formula, man. We'll get into the formula. But right now, you're preparing the youngins, man, for the up-and-coming, you know, Olympics. I know it's been kind of on and off with COVID and everything. And, um, you know, so what What right now, like, what's the information on what's, what's happening right now with the Olympics? Olympics is definitely on. The Olympics are definitely held in July, third, fourth week, third week of July in Tokyo, Japan. Definitely on. But the only thing they're saying, rather than have huge audiences, no audiences except the Japanese people. So they're not ex- allowing the whole world to come over to Japan. Now, let me give you an idea of size-wise. Japan is the same size as California. California, mm-hmm. the population is 39 million people. In mm-hmm. Japan... It's 125 million people. Wow. So they got us 100, 129 million people and 39 in California. And it's the same side. That's just with the Japanese people. If you let the whole world come in there, <laughs> that'd be a little too much during this pandemic time. So yeah. they're keeping it to the Olympians, the coaches, you know, and some of the small little media that come in there, you know, and it's, it's still a little risky, but you know, the, the games, 
let the games begin. Yes, sir, man. Best of luck, man. Hopefully we see some black faces on the podium. That would be amazing. (laughs) Let me just say, right now, so far, so far, we have three brothers that will represent the United States, represent the Peter Westbrook Foundation going to the Olympic Games. Three. That is amazing. That is a lot. But I'm going to this tournament in Richmond, Virginia tomorrow, and that's the last Olympic tryout. Brother, Mr. G, we possibly may even get one or two more brothers going to the Olympic game. That would be his story. So, you know, God is always blessing me, got his hands and favor on us. So don't be surprised when I come back to your show, Mr. G. I tell your audience, hey, brothers and sisters, I had three Olympians. Now I got five. Indeed, indeed. We are looking forward to that, man. And all the work that you've put in over the years with the Peter Westbrook Foundation, I know it's, it's, it's coming, man. And your teacher, man, your teacher said that the future of fencing is in black people. So, you know, he, I, I, I believe that might be right, man. <laughs> hey, let me just say this, brother. This is a white sport. Fencing mm. is a white sport. What do you mean, Peter? I'm talking about a lily white sport. And for us to have this many people on the team, and to have so many of our children in the foundation fencing on the national level, this is beautiful to see. When I came around fencing, I remember me most of the time being the only brother. And mm. now because of the foundation, we got every, let me just say this, on a Saturday morning at the Peter Westbrook Foundation, we've been operating 30, over 30 years now. And we have 140, 50, 60 kids. Wow. That's a lot of kids. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. And it is like two years to get into the foundation. That's how long the waiting list is because nobody wants to leave. <laughs> There's so much love there, so much love. We show the kids how to be the best that you can be. We show the kids, I don't care what obstacle you over, what obstacles get in your way. This is what we do. We don't feel sorry. We keep fighting. We keep overcoming everything. And then we tell the kids, you know, society doesn't let people know how beautiful black is. In fact, society makes you think that being black is something wrong. Being black, you're like a booty man. So Mm -hmm. I tell all the kids, brother, whatever God made you is so beautiful. But I got to say this, not only whatever God made, maybe he made you black, white, Asian, it's so beautiful. But for us, I got to say, sometimes I think we may be one of God's favorite people. And I say that not because of the color of our skin, no, but what we have to endure, endure and put up with. And we still, in spite of that, we had so much love. Oh, my God. So much love to give and uplifting one another, uplifting society, uplifting the whole world. So I feel that we got to be God's favorite children. I believe that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Um that's uh, just a taste of black excellence right there, man. Being able to pull through despite everything, man. Um, so agreed, man. Um, I know you just mentioned that, you know, we identify fencing with, with whiteness, with being a white sport. It's expensive. You know, we, we kind of identify people that fence as, as white people, like outside of your organization, I really can't think of any other organization that, that brings in black kids and black youth and, and is trying to, 
make it black. But one thing that people might not know is that it wasn't always a white sport, correct? Right. So if we go into like some fencing 101 really quickly, um, the history, uh, you would know more than more than I do, but the history of the sport was not always white. And um, in reading your book, Harnessing Anger, you mentioned that your teacher said the best fencer of all time was a black Haitian man. Let me um, just say this. Fencing, literally, you can look that up anywhere, started 1000 B.C. 1000 B.C. in Luxor, Egypt, in mm. Africa. That's the first recordings of fencing with hieroglyphics on one of those tombs. The man had, a, the brother had a sword and the man had a mask and he had a glove on and fencing. That's 1000 B.C. In Luxor, Egypt, brother. That's the, his, the, the history. That's where it originated from. So most people don't know that. We just know now fencing in all of Europe. We know that now Italy, France, Germany, Russia, Germany, you know, all those places. Now they sure know of the PWF. But we <laughs> had a lot of bad brothers and sisters shaking up this whole world, shaking up this whole country. All oh, brother, they shaking up the world. Mm. You know, it's a good thing, you know. Yes, sir. I have, to say, I have to say this, not just becoming Olympians, but people that are listening, becoming an Olympian is nice, and that's nice. But when you are an Olympian in life, to me, that's more important. What's the difference? Olympians, they go to the Olympic Games, it's for a month, it's for whatever. When you are Olympian in life, to me, you overcome every obstacle. You try your 110%. When things get in your way, it's only for a day or two. You learn to move aside and rise even a little higher. If you can keep that formula, always achieving greatness, let nothing stay in your way to hold you back for a long time, and you keep rising higher. To me, being an Olympian in life is more important than being an Olympian in sports. So I always tell the kids in the foundation, the ones that don't become an Olympian and go to the Olympic Games, more importantly, if you become an Olympian in life, oh, that's much more more valuable. Agreed. I always let my kids know that. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with you, man. Um, and that's what sports is, you know, that's that's the origination of sports, teaching about life and not just the sport itself. The sport is a vehicle to teach about life, you know? And I know right. you would agree with that. Right. Um, but yeah, man, just reading your book, man, was the, the first time I came across that you know, the greatest fencer of all time was a Haitian black man, you know? Um, right. And and in your book, you mentioned that he took on a section of Napoleon's army. He was a part of Napoleon's army in the French division. And he took on a section as a challenge of 30 men. And it was just just him, you know what I mean? Um, in a closed space. And he's dueling these guys. All right. Um, and he takes out eight real quick. And the rest of the men are just like, they, they're done. Like, they're like, yeah, we don't want no parts. <laughs> so, um, and his name, by the way, his name was, uh, Jean Louis, um, black Haitian man, all time greatest fencer in the world. Do, do people agree with that? Like outside of, you know, your, your teacher and, uh, yourself, like when, when you go around, do people identify him as the best fencer ever? Well, when people talk about best fencer, they're talking about sports. That's not a matter of life or death. So today, when they talk about the greatest fencer ever lived, they're talking about purely sports. He's uh, the greatest fencer to ever live in life or death, meaning 
you had to get over Napoleon and this dude. He held this bridge, and you had the only way to get into France. You got to go over this bridge. I forgot the name of the bridge, and nobody made it over this bridge, and he defeated everyone. So when they say the greatest fencer that ever lived, for sure, but it's not only in sports, it's the greatest defensive that ever lived in life and death on another level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm I'm never going to forget that one, man. <laughs> Definitely a teaching tool right there, man. Yeah, uh, yeah, appreciate sure. that one. <laughs> um, all right. So with fencing, man, you know, we we are unfamiliar with it, uh, you know, as a whole. Um, I know listeners, a lot of us are not familiar with, with the art, the sport of fencing. Um, so can you uh, break down a little bit for us, a little bit of fencing one-on-one before we get down to the nitty-gritty? Um, you know, the weaponry, the strategy, what we're trying to do here with fencing, um, and some basic understanding. Easy. Now, this this podcast that we're on, this is not visual. This is audio, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The only person I can see is really you, and nobody can really see us, right? No, sir. It's uh, pre-recorded, so we're, we're well, going to release it later on, later on. Okay. So, basically... Uh, you have three different disciplines. Foil, epi, and saber. Like in track, the 100 meters, the 200 meters, the 400 meters. Both mm-hmm. all track fencing. Saber, epi, and foil. I fence saber. Saber is more of a cutting weapon. When you see Zorro cutting the Z, making that Z, that's saber. Mm-hmm. Anything that cuts that saber, slashing, cutting a canvas, that's saber. So mm-hmm. the target area in saber, slashing, is from the waistline up. Your waist, your arm, your head, the waist on up is the target. In the other two disciplines, epe and foil. In epe, the target, the other two weapons, the other two weapons, you can only score with the tip, with a thrust. You can only score, there's no cutting, you can only score with the point. And in epe, the target area, unlike saber, is from the waist up. In epe, it's the whole body. Your toe, your ankles, your knee, your thigh, your stomach, your arms, your head. It's the thrusting weapon. The target is the whole body with the point. It's not a cutting weapon. The last one is foil. The last one is similar to the epi. You can only score with the point, with the thrust of the blade. And the target area in this one is the torso. The torso. No head, no arms, no legs, just the torso. So mm-hmm. again, saber from the waist up, everything. Epe, the whole body is the target, and only with the point. And foil, only with the point. And the target area is the torso. So that's the basic basic uh, information on that. And how many points does it take to win? Like, how do you know who won? Well, in the preliminary rounds, there's five touches. After you get out of the preliminary rounds. Every bout with an individual is 15 touches. So you mm. have 15 touches to win. Got you. Now I know like, you know, in, 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 um, if, if we have like parents listening that are thinking about fencing, getting their kids into fencing, this might sound like a great idea. As a parent, the first thing you're talking about here, thinking about is, uh, safety, right? Um, so they might be thinking, well, you're talking about a, a saber sword. Like, is this a safe, you know, activity for my children? Um, and I know, like, you know, in the past with fencing, there's been some freak accidents. So um, are we looking at just, you know, freak accidents and have things improved with protection and safety and 
um, what what does like safety look like? So when the parents ask, you know, is this a safe sport for my kid? Uh, all sports, things can happen. It's a pretty safe sport. You get injured more, probably baseball, football for sure, even basketball, which you ain't always. Fencing, you got a mask on. Fencing, you got a jacket and then another jacket over that and you got a pair of gloves. And the tip is dull. So you're not gonna, it's not gonna go through you. So most of the time, most of the time is very, very, I mean, you get accidents all the time that happen, but for the most part, it is an extremely safe sport. And the accidents don't really happen when you're little. Sometimes accidents happen when you get older and stronger and more powerful, you know? So that's hmm. why sometimes accidents can happen. But football game, you always get something happen oh, every yeah. game. <laughs> Basketball, you can always somebody ankles, arms, something happening every game. Baseball, so I'm, I'm gonna put it more in line with baseball, where not it happens, but not that often. I mean, I just gotta sound. I don't want to scare the audience. I shouldn't even say, it, but I don't want to scare the audience. We could keep it real. We could keep it real, Mister Westbrook. This, like I said, very, very, very rarely happens. But one time, I'm fencing. Now, not in the tournament. I'm taking a lesson. In my younger day was my Hungarian coach. So I don't have a jacket. All I have is a t-shirt on, a mask and a t-shirt. That's it. So I'm taking a private lesson and I'm flying in the air. He's showing me something and I'm literally flying in the air and he had his blade up and I was supposed to take the blade, but he put it up at the last minute and the blade actually broke. And then when you get a blade, the fencing blade is very flexible. But once it breaks and what you got left of the blade, let's say the blade is, let's say, two and a half feet. When that blade breaks, you're down with one foot of broken steel. That part went in my neck. So that was was just a freak accident and it went in my neck. And when I say went in my neck, let me tell you what I mean. It went through my esophagus and it went through my larynx, which is your windpipe. Ooh. And I remember when it went through, I pulled it out, I gagged, ah, gagged. And I just need being in the projects in the hood so long. There's no need to panic because you have <laughs> three minutes to live if you want to die. So I already know. Let me just stand up for a minute. If I'm going to die, let me within or pass out within the next one or two minutes. So, so let me stand up and see if I pass out. If I pass out, I might be dead. They rush me. But let me just, I just nothing I could do. But let me just stand and wait. I can't panic. Let me so I stood up about a minute. Or two. Wow, look like I beat this one. Look like I'm not going to die. No, really. Look like I'm, I'm not going to die. Look like I beat this one. The only thing was, as I talk, the hole in my esophagus and larynx, this, this is how the noise works. Every time I talk, like, what the hell is that noise? <laughs> I had a hole in my neck and air was coming out of my neck wow. every time I talk. But this is the interesting part. I'm so crazy. I must have lived in the housing projects too long. I said to myself, well, if I go down to the hospital, I know I'm not coming out. I already know that. <laughs> With a hole in your neck, you won't be there for days. I already right. know that. So I said, well, I'm a, I'm a clean freak. I'm a clean nut. So I said, well, I don't want to be in a hospital. Here I am fencing, smelling like uh, uh, whatever. And I said, let me go take a shower first. So I'm, I'm not joking. So when I'm in a hospital, I'm going to be there three, four days, and I just do not want all this sweat on me when I'm taking that sweat. I went upstairs, 
move very gently. Air's coming out my throat. I'm washing myself with just water. And then I finished. I said, well, damn, I'm 20-something years old. Do I really want to pay a taxi fare, call 911? Let me take a subway ride to the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I take a subway ride, and the subway in New York City is going up and down and going up and down. I'm getting a little nervous now because I'm shaking some of those arteries and veins in my neck. Man, when I went to the hospital, I said, Miss, I'm coming in here because I was fencing and the blade broke in my neck. Let me show you this noise. (laughs) When I showed her that, this lady freaked out. Wow. Let me tell you what I mean, freaked out. The nurse, knife wound to the neck, knife wound to the neck. So hurry up, nurse. I said, no, miss, you don't <laughs> understand. She's like this, no, you don't understand. So I went, just like I said, I was in there one week. And they told me, you're the luckiest man that ever lived. Why? I said, why? There's nothing but veins and arteries in your neck. The only place... When there's no veins and artery, the only place is a half, a quarter of an inch in diameter in a circle, and it's your larynx where that where that dent is in the bottom of your neck. Wow. That's the only place where there's no veins and artery. Wow. So the broken blade went of all the only spot in your neck, and I'm talking about a quarter of an inch of a circle, like a little smaller, like the size of a dime, hmm. the size of a dime or a penny. And that's where that broken blade went, the size of a dime or penny. And that's where that weapon went in my neck. If it was any other place in my neck, which is the majority of my neck, they said, you wouldn't have made it. You would not, you would not have made it here. You would be dead. Veins and arteries, you could make it. So it, just like I said, I was in there for one week. But let me just say this, Mr. G, I was sure smelling good when I was in the hospital. <laughs> now, now you're, t- you're, you're, you're teaching, man. How, how do you? How did he respond, man? Like after it all went down, he freaked out. I mean, he he freaked out. He just started, oh, oh, he just freaked out. Me, I'm like, hey, I've seen so many things like this in the housing projects. This, this is not gonna freak me out. I'm just <laughs> going what I got to do. Take my shower so I can smell good, and I'm good. And I, I I did make sure if I don't pass out in one minute, I should be good. So I didn't pass out in one minute. So I said, oh, that bought me a little more time. I should be able to make it to the hospital. Do I call 911? They're going to make a big deal out of everything. Lay me out in a stretch of people looking at me. Let me just, let me just, let me just go in a taxi. Uh, I ain't got that much money anyway. Let me take the subway. <laughs> when I all think about it, it was a little eccentric, a little crazy, but one of my crazy stories that panned out pretty well, a successful ending. Yeah, that is, that talk about miraculous. <laughs> the exact point in your neck. I mean, you even taking that risk, man, like uh, to 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 take to go take a shower and and, and um, you know, take the. I was gonna be in a hospital four or five days. Yeah, was it bleeding? Was it was it like bleeding out? It's the only spot where there's no blood. Is the is the air, the larynx, the air pocket, the esophagus. There's no blood. Wow. No blood, and it went in my neck, and I pulled it out like, oh whoa, luckiest man alive. Indeed, indeed. I didn't realize how serious it was because once I got to the hospital in New York City, they said, if you hit a vein or artery, which you probably did, it may rupture in the next couple of hours. And even if you're here, you still might not make it. Mm. So even if you're here, 
it would be major to save you. So you can't eat food or nothing. I couldn't eat food for one damn week. Wow. One week, I could not eat food. They yeah. would give me liquid food intravenously. That does not quench <laughs> your hunger. Trust so how, me. How, how, has it, how has it healed over time? It just, it just healed itself. It won't cover itself up as good. Wow. That's, that, that is really miraculous, I man. A, great, a, a, a high-level athlete fencing six days a week and not eating food for a week. Brother, the liquid doesn't do it. It's the chicken that I like. It's the collard greens and the macaroni and cheese. Brother, I'm just drinking liquid. I'm eating <laughs> liquid. Water, liquid. Everything in my arm. Brother, yeah. when I got out of the hospital in one week, I must have got me some chicken, collard greens, <laughs> macaroni and cheese. <laughs> oh, man. One week, man. But I'm, we are glad that you made it, man, because uh, you had so much left to do after that, man. You know? Let me tell you another story real quick. Again, before I tell you this other story for my audience, things very, very, extremely rare happen. I just happen to be one of the unlucky people that two things happen. <laughs> but I don't want to let you know. I don't think this is happening in the in, in the country doesn't happen this often. I'm fetching somebody one day and I noticed that my blade broke and I remember the experience from before in my neck. And I realized when the blade broke, it went in the dew. So I told the guy without getting him too long, hey, brother, I think the blade went in your jacket and in you. He said, nah, nah, nah. I said, brother, listen to me. I don't want you to get along. But this blade broke and it went inside, it went inside of you a little bit. No, 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 Pete, I'm good. Don't worry about it. I said, okay, open up your jacket. Just open up your fencing jacket. He opened up his fencing jacket. You know how you see, like, Three drops of blood, all of a sudden, it soaks up the whole T-shirt. So wow. it went from three drops. The 50s, 60s, whole T-shirt was getting wet with blood. So I said, so he said, I can't breathe. Oh, no. I said, brother, you just said you all right. You just <laughs> said, you just said, it didn't get, you, you won't be able to call 911. I can't breathe. Brother, you can breathe. This fear is just making you get alarmed, but you're okay. Man, call 911. They came. They said, well, why did you stab him? I didn't stab him. Now, <laughs> brother, this was a real hard to explain. Well, wow. Were you angry at him? This, I'm fencing a white guy. Were you Ooh. mad at him? No. Well, well why did you stab him? I didn't stab him on purpose. Well, you didn't stab him on purpose, but you stabbed him. Yes, but guys, listen, we're fencing. I said, Dave, Dave, Dave is all scared. Dave, can you get yourself together for a minute and just tell the people what happened to get me off the hook? So finally, he said, yeah, we were just fencing sparringly for fun. And it happened. So then they got it. But it was not too easy to explain to these police that me stabbing <laughs> this white boy was just in sport. Man. You know? And guess what happened? Mm -hmm. It punctured his lung. Wow. He went to the hospital. I, it went into his lung and punctured his lung. So I want to, the audience, I just want to let you know, these are rare, 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 rare circumstances. And these are two Olympians fighting on a whole nother level. That's why this happened. So please, it's the most safe sport. It's the most fun sport. So come on out and try this fencing. Most, the most fun you'll ever have. Indeed. And, um, like you said, man, it's, it's high level, you know, extra strength and, you know, extra pressure that you guys are using and everything, man. And right. To me, if, if parents can sign their kids up for football, 
<laughs> with all the concussion stuff out right now oh, and everything, man. man, there's no reason that. Man, this is should... <laughs> I should never get a fencing injury if you stop. This, me, this happened to me, me fencing some big time Olympians, aggression, two big men getting crazy. And that's all that was. Yeah. Yeah, indeed, man. And again, man, we are, we are thankful you didn't get shot by a cop. We're thankful that you survived right. the neck injury. Right. Man, and <laughs> Let me explain to you, uh, Mr. G, to the audience, why I started the Peter Westbrook Foundation, right? Mm-hmm. Let me explain uh, my audience, my people. After me living in the housing projects with a Japanese mother and an African-American father, and my mother used to, my father used to beat my mother all the time, physically beat her a lot. And in my neighborhood is nothing thousands of children and so much violence. So my mother actually introduced me to this particular sport of fencing and told me that her family used to get involved in fencing. You know, the Japanese, her kendo, and her family, her ancestors, actually, this is funny, I didn't find out till like two years ago, were actually samurais. So for me, she didn't get me to do it for that reason. She actually wanted me to fence because in the housing project, we didn't have any structural activities, no activities, nothing, nothing but fighting and doing what we do. So she wanted me to meet a different type, a different breed of people. That was her only reason. And somehow, lo and behold, she was right. Because from the housing projects, thousands of us, most of the people that I grew up with are dead. Most of the people are not even in jail. Most of them are dead. Some of them, a few of them in jail. The few that are on drugs, you can't be on drugs 40 years. So very few people on drugs, either dead or in jail, but didn't make it. Thousands of us didn't make it. In fact, I got a call from one of my brothers, Ducey. He called me up uh, like about a month ago. I haven't seen him in like, I don't know, 30 years. Mm. And he said, Peter, it's me, Ducey. I said, Ducey who? For the project. I said, oh, shoot, what are we doing? I've been in jail for 15 years. Wow. I'm out. But guess what, Peter? I learned the message. I got it. All I do is uplift children. All I do is help children in prison and guide them through difficult times. I got a wife and kids. The point is, if some people, it takes a long time to get it. But that's okay. It's not how long it takes as long as you get it. So the point I'm making is this. After getting a scholarship to NYU, I started fencing. My mother talked me into going fencing in high school, Essence Catholic High School. I got really good, won the state championships. Next thing I know, NYU offered me a full Division I fencing scholarship. So from there, I met my Hungarian coach. From there, I fenced at these two white clubs, the New York Athletic Club. At that time, they didn't allow black women or Jews in the club to be members in my Uh other club, the New York Fences Club. And from that time on, just going to Olympics after Olympics, getting involved in corporate positions in marketing with so many, not so many, three, four different firms that I stuck it out with. So now that's when I started the Peter Westbrook Foundation. Why? Because I'm so thankful I made it. Why? Because I'm so grateful that I'm still alive. Why? And I'm one of the few people that made it. So I'm just always thankful, always trying to give back, 
always trying to make a difference. And I learned this, Mr. G, no matter how much I give back, no matter what I give back, for me, it's never enough because my life was spared because my life was blessed. So me working with all these kids for 31 years, they becoming Olympians and me giving back to them to me is a dream come true. To me, that's more valuable in saving lives and creating Olympians than all the success that I have received. I mean, it's nice to be a six-time Olympian, 13-time national champion, but that is for me. But mm. changing and saving people's lives, that's the highlight of my life. So I got two highlights, me going to the Olympics and winning Pan Am gold medals. But another, my newest highlight is this foundation. I mean, when you got a chance to touch so many people's lives and change their lives and tra- change their trajectory and make them understand how beautiful and black you are, how beautiful and black you are, once you get that, you can do anything. So for me, for me, you know, two careers in the corporate arena, now the foundation arena, and now I got a wonderful wife, Susan, raising two grandchildren. To me, I can say, Mr. G, I'm one of the happiest men on this planet. I'm the, one of the happiest men on this planet. Mm. Blessings on top of blessings, man. Yep. Yes, sir. And um, just going into like some of your history too, man. I, this there's just so much. Um, you growing up, man, like uh you're probably what in high school when um when uh Malcolm X and Martin Oh yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Yeah, when Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, um, yeah. you know, got assassinated. Yeah. What was like that experience? Like, you know, what what was that experience like for you? Like, were you were you aware of what was going on at the time? Like, and yeah. what, what was the community response, man? Like, from just you know outside of just listening to the documentaries and you know the what was that real experience like? In the sixties, it put a hole in everybody's soul. In the sixties, it put a hole in everybody's. Spirit. In the 60s, it felt like, oh my God, one of our prophets, it put a hole in our whole community because we didn't have a lot of people that were standing out and leading the community, leading the charge, risking their life, their life for us to uplift their people, to fight racism, to fight different types of oppression and segregation. So when you snuffed those people's lives out, we were all broken. We felt like we were snuffed out too. But on a, on another note, I had a chance to spend time with Muhammad Ali. I got to tell you, Malcolm X, my hero, Martin Luther King, my hero. But I got a chance to spend days with Muhammad Ali and his wife, me, my wife, and Lonnie. And to me... That was, oh man, that was a blessing to see how humble he is, to see how much he loves his people, to see he would risk his title and everything to stand up for justice, to stand up for injustice, to stand up for who would say but Muhammad Ali, why would I go to Vietnam? And everybody, you have to go to Vietnam. You don't mm-hmm. go to Vietnam, you're going to jail in the 60s. Mm-hmm, you don't mm-hmm. go to Vietnam, you go to jail, or you got to run away to Canada or something like that. So there was no escape. There was no <laughs> escape. There was no escape. When your numbers call, you got to go to Vietnam and fight. And he said, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to fight the Vietcom. Why? Vietcom ain't never called me, nigga. 
why would I go and fight it? He's saying this to Howard Cosell and on the national news media. So mm-hmm. for him to risk everything to say that in front of the whole world, I got to tell you, I had a whole weekend, me, my wife, his, his wife, Lonnie, I spent the whole weekend with him. And I'm going to tell you, that is one of the highlights of my mentors, one of my heroes that I ever spent time with, one of my heroes for sure. Muhammad Ali. That is amazing, man. Uh, um, you're, you're like a walking history book, man. And, <laughs> you know, um, and and one of your closest friends too. Uh, you uh, you were pretty cool with uh, Arthur Ashe, right? Arthur Ashe is on my board. Was on my board of directors. So that was a bad brother. Uh, they're doing a new documentary on him now. As we speak, you'll see it probably in the next month or two. But they're doing another documentary. Bad brother with his in tennis, like I did at fencing. Winning Wimbledon, first black man ever to win Wimbledon. That's a bad brother. And what was he like as a person? I know, like, with all the athleticism, you know, everybody talks about his character and the type of person that he was, but you were close with him. You guys were friends. What what type of person was he? Well, put it this way Muhammad Ali got the, uh, uh, the biggest mouth in the world. Muhammad Ali got so much love. He'll tell, man, I just can't get over, man. He's saying on national TV national TV. Mm. I'm not going to fight the white man. I should be fighting you. <laughs> oh, Can you imagine? TV. People can't say that now. You can't <laughs> say that now on TV. You my enemy. Vian Conway never called me nigga. You call me nigga every day. Why am I going to go fight him? I should be fighting you. Who would say <laughs> such a thing on TV? Arthur was a little more quiet, a little more subdued, a little more cerebral. So he would always be calm soft-spoken, and he made his statements through his tennis racket and how soft-spoken, and he stood up for injustice in a soft-spoken way. So I Mm. had a chance to be with two heroes, the soft-spoken and the outwardly aggressive, outspoken one. So me, I'm in between. (laughs) Half Arthur, half Mohammed, so I'm in between. Yeah, that's that's amazing, man. Just just the, the history component, man your history yourself and all the people that you've just come across in your life. Um, definitely a blessing just to be doing this interview with you, man. Right. My pleasure, brother. My pleasure. Yeah. So um, just going back into, you know, your fencing, um, just the, just the amount, like we could just talk about your fencing for like hours and hours, man, because we're talking about six Olympics. You were talking about national championship after national championship, you know, um, and you've been in the game for so long, man. So as an athlete, as a fencer, as a top level competitor, you know, what was like your routine, your strategy for mastering your fencing abilities and then maintaining it for so long? Well, for me, God gave me, God gave me a lot of talent in the sport. So I give all praise to God. He gave me a lot of talent and he sent me a great master, a great coach. So with the talent that he gave me, and then he sent me this great coach, us together, we were able to break barriers and do great things. And he, and then doors were open to me. I remember when I first walked into the New York Athletic Club, when I met my coach, and I remember, I remember distinctly, black people, Jewish people, and women could not be members. And mm-hmm. I remember distinctly, I got to let, people can't see me, but I'm going to let you see me. So I'm walking in the door, the New York Athletic Club, used the ceilings are, 
not 10 feet ceilings, like 40 feet ceilings, like wow. huge, gothic decoration, like crazy design. And I walk in the door. He said, Peter, I want you to come and fence with me. I'm the coach. I coach Chaba Eltish. I want you to come and fence, and I'm going to start training you here. And I never forget, I walked in the door. The whole lobby stopped and looked at me. Like 30, 40 people stopped and looked at me. I didn't get it. So I kept looking behind me. What's, what's behind me? Damn. I kept looking. They kept looking at me. Damn, I don't see nobody behind me. <laughs> so I couldn't get it. So then I said, it must be something on me. So I'm looking at my chest. My arm. What the hell is on me that they're looking at? Oh, God. They got food on my, they got food on my face or something? Mm-hmm. I didn't get it, man. That was the <laughs> first time me walking in the New York Athletic Club. And brother, when you look at me, look at me. I'm not a threatening brother. I'm not so threatening where, you know, s- some of us, they may get threatened. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so threatening. They don't make, don't make a difference. They see you a man of color. They see that you are, you ain't white. Brother, they looked at me like, whoa, I didn't get it. Until <laughs> I didn't get it, brother. I, I thought it was somebody behind me just doing something bad. Wow. And then when there's nobody behind me, I had to turn around three times. It's like, what is this guy doing in our space? Like, you and, know, and I gotta, I gotta <laughs> say a curse word for my audience. It must be some shit on me. <laughs> I'm standing this. Yo, it got me some shit on me, man. There's nobody behind me. And it took me a little later. Pete, we went into a racist club. No people allowed to be black, Jews, or women. It didn't, it, it took me a minute to get that way, brother. Mm. Took me a minute, you know? But the yeah. point is, getting back to your point, working with this coach, what a great, a great coach, and God has blessed me with talent, and we trained so much together, and he opened up the doors at the New York Athletic Club, where they allowed me to come every time, gave me a lock. I couldn't become a member, but he would give me private lessons at the New York Athletic Club before every member of the New York Athletic Club. So everybody knew me after they said to the to the to people in the lobby, uh, uh, he's one of the good ones. So after that, people didn't look at me like a boogeyman anymore. And then I trained <laughs> at the New York Fences Club. So I trained six days a week and with a great coach and great competition around me. And I was able to just move in that trajectory and just move and move and move. But I have to say this. In sports, you still got to have a career because, you know, very few people in sports where you don't have to work. Most people have to work in sports. Maybe there's a percentage of people, 1% of people that don't have to work in sports. So I was able to graduate at NYU. For people mm-hmm. that are listening, you always got to push that education part, NYU. The next thing I know, I'm working uh, in the corporate arena in marketing, uh, working for IBM working for the New York Times selling advertising at IBM selling software and hardware, working mm-hmm. in North American band like selling airplanes and steamship line services. So you always got to make sure for little people that are listening, you got to get that education. You got to get that education. You got to, I didn't like what I was doing. I love what I'm doing now. I love transforming people's lives. Before it was just a job that I'm good at. I didn't love it. But you gotta keep pushing. You gotta keep fighting. You gotta persevere because now I got my dream job. Mm. I got a dream job now, transforming and touching people's lives. But sometimes you gotta work and persevere to get where you need to go. 
It can't fall in your lap when you're in your 20s. You may luck out. It may not fall in your lap in your 30s. You may luck out. You got to persevere and keep on struggling and you will be fine. And you will have a huge impact on people. But you got to persevere. Indeed, man. And the uh, educational component is so important, man. And I always tell kids, like, no matter what level, you know, every kid's dream is to make it into the pros for whatever sport they're playing. You know, and I ask them, too, like, even if you make it, what you going to do after that? Average career is about three to five years, you know? You know, what are you going to do after that? <laughs> always. And, and you always got to realize this. You always got to develop yourself inside because you are not your success. Let me break that down to you. Mm. Audience. You are not your success. Many people, football, they think that you are your success. Basketball, baseball, and when the career is over, they're broken. The lives are shattered. Lives are shattered. You are not your success. You are not your money. And you are not your titles. So when that time period is over, you develop yourself and use that as a platform to develop the greatness in you. But if you think because you're a famous athlete, brother, when that is over, you're broken, you're working from scratch, you're depressed, you're unhappy, because when it's gone, what are you left with? So you gotta develop that little man inside of you. You gotta Indeed. develop that little woman inside of you and develop that. That's who you are. When you develop your character, when you develop your spirit, when you develop your love and giving back. The other stuff, that's just icing on the cake. So if you think you're the icing on the cake, Olympic medals and football players, you're missing the whole point. Because when that's gone, if that's all you think you are, you have nothing. You are broken. You are lonely. You are depressed. Always remember, it's nice to get titles. It's nice to have a lot of money. It's nice to have a lot of success. But the real success comes from inside. And that's what we have to develop and make that grow. Indeed. It kind of it kind of reminds me, too, of like a, a relationship. You know what I mean? Like when those people that they put in everything into that relationship and it, it becomes a part of their self-esteem and a part of everything. And then when they when the relationship ends, it's like, what do I do now? Like, you know, when the self-esteem goes crashing down and. You know, they, they're left with nothing, you know, because they invested everything into that relationship. So what you just said kind of, you know, reminded me of that, you know, the investment that people put into the relationship, but not in themselves, you know. Uh, it's the same thing. But I say yeah. the same thing. You are not your relationships. You are not your relationships. So if you think being in a relationship is who you are, being in a relationship, that determines who you are. Not wrong. Same thing. It does not. You can be in a relationship, but the point is you still have to develop the things in you. If you think the relationship is, the, that's a title, that's the love around your title. Nope, that's not it. If the relationship is gone, like when the sport is gone, when mm -hmm. your career in basketball, you are broken. When the relationship is gone, you are broken. You are not your achievements. You are not your money. You are not your titles. You are not your relationships that you are in. Once you get that, you got to start understanding to develop, to develop character, to develop love, to develop decency, to develop how you give back. That is, that is the, that's the main thing. 
And when you develop that in any relationship that you get into, people look at that and say, wow, I got me a gold mine. As opposed to, man, I got me somebody that's like a, like leeching on my back. Man, I can't wait to get me somebody a little better. So you always want to make sure you're polishing your inside. So in any relationship you get, oh man, I got me a catfish. I got me a goldfish. Right? Some of the sisters tell me, man, I got me a goldfish. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well said, man. Well said. Well said. Um, and just going into, you know, your, your career, man, uh, 1984 Olympics, man. That's when you got your, your bronze medal. And I remember uh, reading in your book, like you dealing with all this, you know, treatment from the judges. And this was before the time of, you know, the electronic uh, thing where you just touch and then it, it, it reads it. These guys were looking at your touches and then judging. So like you just mentioned, you're dealing in a sport that there's not that many black people and you're depending on white people to be the judge. And, you know, you, you dealt with a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, you're, you're, you're touching, you're getting touches, touches, touches and no points. And then, you know, somebody touched you one time and five points, <laughs> you know? So, um, in, 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 uh, the, when, when you competed for the bronze, um, I know your coach said you could have even got gold, man. Do you feel like in your heart, like, uh, if the judges treated you correctly, um, that you would have won a gold in the Olympics instead of the bronze or just, just in competing overall? Like, do you think that it would have been more, you know, more, uh, I, I, I hate to say accolades because you have so much, but do you think it would have been more, um, as opposed to what you, what you were able to, to accomplish, which was amazing things, but do you think the judges really impacted that enough? Well, let me take the first part of your statement, the first part of your inquiry that you were stating about. You said people, you said they were uh, treating you. They didn't treat me. They were cheating. They went through me to get this clear. It wasn't the treatment. They were downright cheating me like crazy. Mm. Even though they cheated me like crazy, I still was able to succeed. Let me tell you what I mean. I'm at the Olympic Games. They're cheating me. I'm ready to be eliminated. So I got two decisions to make. Get eliminated, keep your mouth quiet, protest, stop the Olympic Games, Pro and I'm not going to move from this trip. I'm not going to move from this track. I'm going to stay on this track. No event is going to go on. I'm staying right here. So I did. They said, we're going to throw you out the Olympic Games. So in my mind, two decisions. I'm going to get thrown out anyway and cheated, or I can protest and they throw me out. But at least I'm making a statement, and I may be able to overcome this huge deficit. I'll take the ladder and take my chances. So I did. Everybody came over. All the people from different countries, the board of directors, everybody came to watch. And somehow I calculated correctly. He did not throw me out because he knew he was guilty. And now everybody, the board of directors, everybody is looking at is watching the remainder of this battle. Now, the question is this. After being cheated so much, can I still come back and win? So I got to have one of the best days of my life to come back and do that. And thank God, you know, if I would have lost the bout, they did not know all the five, six touches I got cheated. They said, what's the problem? The black dude here, he called everybody over and he lost. What's his problem? <laughs> so that's how it would have went. So I said, man, you better fence your ass off now. You better let your light shine. You better tell God, give me some magic powers. Somehow I was able to get those magic powers and pull this off, <laughs> pull this off, brother. 
source. Yo, for me, that was the biggest, biggest thing in my life where I made the right calculation, you know? Mm -hmm. So could I have won a goal? Yes. I only had one bout more to win the goal. I won another bout after that. But the guy beat me. He was on a little more than I was in that bout. So, you know, I'm going to take it to say he was just a little better than me at that moment in time. So I mm -hmm. thank God because the first time, I, the first medal as a black man in 1984, but that's the first medal the United States has received since 1960. Wow. So that's the first medal since 1960 and the first uh, medal that a black man won. So for me, hey, you know what? When I won that medal, it's for me, it's for my family, it's for black people, it's for my country. When I walk down the street sometimes, people say, hey, you that, you that fence, you that fence, you that fence, you that fence, you know? So for me, it's always still an uplifting moment. Just be, whenever I can uplift a brother, uplift a sister, man, count on me. You know? Whenever I see people that will risk their lives, risk their careers for injustice, that's beautiful. You gotta have a lot of courage to do it, Mohammed Ali. You gotta have a lot of courage to do what Carlos did. You gotta have a lot of do what Tommy, Tommy did. Tommy and Carlos. You gotta have a lot of courage to do mm -hmm. that, boy. What? So whenever I see somebody like that, man, courage, standing up for justice, standing up for injustice. When I see people like that, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I got a chance to talk to Tommy and Carlos at a different arena, you know? And they, 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 they rose back up. They got beaten down, can't get jobs ostracized from any activities, but somehow God has beefed them back up and now they're put on the pedestal before they were the enemy of the country, the enemy of everyone. But now since time has changed and time move on, they're actually looked upon now by the Olympic Committee when they got ostracized by the Olympic Committee. Now they were a hero of the Olympic movement. It's funny how time has changed. Now they're actually two heroes. Muhammad Ali now is actually a hero. But Muhammad Ali and Tommy and Carlos, they were not heroes when that first happened. They were enemy. Enemy mm. of the country. Enemy of the sport. I mean, in the newspapers, TV, enemies. So for me, whenever I see somebody risk their career, risk their life, give away their fame, that's a bad brother. That's a bad brother or a bad sister. Indeed, man. Um, so just, you know, flash forwarding to, to kind of right now um, and, you know, getting ready for the Olympics and the Peter Westbrook Foundation and everything that you've been doing uh, with fencing, with the sport of fencing, with this country, with Black people, um, everything. Um, you know, when it's all said and done and you retire from the Peter Westbrook Foundation and, it's, you know, you're no longer running it, but it's still running, it's still doing amazing work. Um, what legacy do you want the name Peter Westbrook to hold? You know, it's, it's funny because the end, we all got to die. We all got to sit down. Sometimes it seems like I'm going to live forever. Mr. G, this is funny. It seems to me that I'm going to live forever. I'm with the kids in the foundation. I travel with them. I get new generations of Olympians, Olympians. And I always tell the kids, guys, you got me thinking I'm going to live forever. I'm a guy just like you. But it seems like 
na quarantine so that we can end is coming soon. So what do I want? First of all, I gotta get someone to take my place. I have other minions for my organization that will be able to fill in the spot and take over to run with the baton, to run with the success, to run with the torch. And what do I want? I like my legacy to be this for all the people, for all the children, for all the donors, for all the sponsors. We have a lot of television programs coming out of Netflix, CBS, NBC, so many documentaries coming out. A legacy is I want people to know that black people are beautiful. We have we have to let our light shine. We got so much light in us, so much shine in us. And my legacy, I want people to know that we must continue to let our light shine and do all the great things that was destined for us and nothing can get in the way. If it does, it's only for a minute and we have to, we have to uplift everybody else. We have to uplift the community. We got to uplift everybody. So that is the legacy and the message that I would like to leave my foundation of everyone when that time is coming and it's coming sooner than I expected even though when you look at me it looks like I got the fountain of youth. My tendons and my knees, I go on fence once in a while. I lift weight. Oh man, what's that what's that pain and that noise in my knee? What's that? <laughs> I pull my, my my rotator cuff. I pull my muscles in my man. Things are starting to break down, brother. But I keep giving me favor. Because I don't want to go yet. One day I'd like to be in heaven. I'd like to be on the other side. But I tell you what, I don't know what's over there. So I'm gonna drag this out as long as I can. <laughs> amen man amen yeah. and if you could just leave us with one more thing mr westbrook um your favorite quote and what it means to you my favorite quote yes sir i'm going to say as a deacon i got something in my my silver and gold i do not have but what i do have i give you in the name of jesus silver and gold i do not have but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, in the name of Allah, in the name of Jehovah. Meaning, brother, silver and gold is nice, but we have something that Allah, Jehovah, Jesus, we all, we got more than that. So let's not get cut off for material silver and gold. There's much more than that that's much more beautiful, much more glorious than silver and gold. And never forget that. And if you never forget that, you'll be a multi, multi multi-millionaire because silver and gold is not enough. Mm, Amen. Amen. Yes, sir. Mr. Westbrook, um, for those of us that are curious about how to get kids into your foundation, um, can you let people know how to, how to, um, you know, where, where you're at, what your location is and, you know, how to, how to sign up for the Peter Westbrook Foundation for anyone interested in signing their kids up? Let's keep it short. I'm here in New York City, peterwestbrook.org or peterwestbrookfoundation.org. That's the website. There you go. There it is. There it is. Mr. Westbrook, thank you so much for your generosity and your time. Guys, I hope you are inspired as I am. We got to, touch of history, the best of the best in the game of fencing. And thank you for listening. Share the program, everyone. Uh, and remember, your mind is the most powerful tool 
in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G, and I will see you next time on Mastermind. Thank you, Mr. G, and thank you, my beautiful audience. God bless you, Mr. G. Yes, sir. Thank you for the time, man, and we'll keep in touch, man. Okay, Mr. G. I'll see you later.